0: And welcome to this week's Dairy Dialogue Podcast, and it's a long one. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and we have four interviews for you this week, all reasonably long. The reason I didn't want to hold any of them over is that some of them are time-sensitive, in that there are entry forms, early bird registration deadlines, and donation matching deadlines, so I wanted anyone listening to be able to take advantage of them as soon as possible. This is podcast number 73, and our guests this week are Alan Lyons, Head of Shows about the British Cheese Awards, Maria Velisariu, Chief Science and Technology Officer at the Institute of Food Technologists on Climate Change, Dr. Julius Adobango, Project Coordinator for Cow Uganda about the Living with Wildlife Programme, and Society of Dairy Technology President Dr Paul Boucher on the upcoming Spring Conference in Cookstown, Northern Ireland. And of course we also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INTL FC Stone. Like me, the guys from INTL Stone travel a lot and so uppermost in everyone's minds at the moment when travelling seems to be coronavirus, which continues to dominate the global news. More events being cancelled or postponed this week, and one of those was Alimentaria in Barcelona, which will now take place in September. Next week I'll be doing some site visits in the Netherlands, travelling counterclockwise around the country, starting and ending in Amsterdam, with a a 6am flight out of Glasgow, and then taking regional trains and buses to get around. Or at least that's the theory. I see today that they have banned shaking hands in the Netherlands, so I'll have to be aware of that one. I managed to find one bottle of hand sanitizer in the house, goodness knows how long it's been there, and the dilemma was do I take that with me or do I sell it online for $50? You simply cannot buy hand sanitizer and many other things within a 50 mile radius of here, and it's probably that people are stockpiling it but not sure why they're stockpiling it. It's pretty bad when you can get a budget flight into Europe cheaper than hand sanitizer. I'm not sure I could actually take financial advantage from the outbreak anyway, but there are those that will, unfortunately. Before we get to the interviews, a quick recap of the news from Dairy Reporter for the past week, in case you missed any of it. So, in no particular order, Horizon Organic is looking for a carbon-positive supply chain by 2025. South America is poised for milk production growth in 2020. Several companies with ties to dairy have joined the European Plastics Pact. Fonterra's chairman is retiring in November. We have a story on camel milk in Australia. In the UK, the Ice Cream Alliance has started a new contest and is looking for the Parlour of the Year. And Arla Foods is dipping its toes, or perhaps its feet, into the plant-based sector these stories and more at dairyreporter.com. And of course, don't forget that tomorrow, Thursday, is our live webinar on sustainability and environmentally friendly products, which features panellists from the IDF, Friesland Campina and Amcor. It's an hour long, it's free to register, and even if you can't listen to it live, you can register and send in a question, and you'll also be able to listen to it afterwards. We do anticipate quite a lot of questions and unfortunately can't answer them all. And when I say we, I mean the panellists. So please head on over to dairyreporter.com and you can find the registration page there. So in effect, I'll be doing three podcasts this week. This one, the live webinar tomorrow, and then on Friday, I have to put together next week's show. Because when I would normally be editing it, I'll be on a train from... Well, I can't really remember unless I look at the schedule. Hopefully I'll be on a train anyway. So let's get to this week’s guests. There are lots of different awards for dairy products, and one such show is the British Cheese Awards, which is open to both large and small producers. The deadline for our entries is coming up, so we took the opportunity to chat with Alan Lyons, head of shows, about the event. Is this cheese show a part of, or the Cheese Awards, part of a, a bigger
1: event? Yes, it's part It's part of the Royal Bath and my show. For over 150 years, that's been a four-day show, but this year we're going to a three-day show. But the British Cheese Awards are, are a large part of the Royal Bath and My show.
0: And how long has the, the, uh, the cheese part of it been running?
1: Um, we have had cheese classes at the Royal Bath and my show since 1852, but the British Cheese Awards have been running for probably five years our dairy produce section it was a big important section because obviously we're in the the region for cheddar cheese but we had the opportunity to um, take on running the British Cheese Awards and it seemed only natural that they should come here to the sort of the home of cheddar and obviously you know we've got a, a team here who are used to running an event of that type so it, it worked well for us.
0: Has it grown in those five years or how, how has it changed in those five years?
1: Or has well, it? we're certainly getting, I mean, with the entries are, are getting bigger and bigger each year. And last year we had over 900 entries. This year, I think we'll easily get to the 1,000 entries. And I think it's just this great celebration of British cheese, which you know we're very proud to be part of.
0: And that seems to have really changed over the years too. When I was younger, there were... Not that many cheeses, and now there are all kinds of artisanal cheeses and cheeses from all around the world.
1: Yeah, well, and it's also interesting, you know, that we're, um, you know, the British Cheese Awards, but the fact that we have, you know, feta style classes, you know, uh, ricotta style classes. So it, it's not simply just the traditional cheddars and lesters and stiltons. We're, we're, um, looking at, you know, continental style cheeses, but made here with British milk from either you know um, cows or sheep or buffalo or goats, so it certainly has changed, it really has changed.
0: And you just mentioned cheddar a while ago, it used to be that you could get sort of mild and strong cheddar and that was it, and now there are all kinds of different cheddars with different flavours and ingredients.
1: Yeah, I'm, I, I think obviously we're, we're very fortunate being you know, here in the West Country that, that cheddar is still king. But, you, but you're quite right. People now want, you know, something a little bit different. Although, you know, we have uh, the mild mature and the extra mature and the vintage. Um, there is still a, a place for cheddars with we, added, you know, whether it's sweet or savory or smoked. Uh, because I think people have very different palates nowadays. Don't they? They want something different on their cheese board.
0: And you even, you have glasses for Flavour-added cheeses.
1: Yes, we do. Yeah, so we have a, a, for the, the flavour-added, we have sweet, savoury, um, and a class for uh, garlic, pepper, and chilli. And then people um, are interested in smoking products, and particularly, you know, smoked cheese seems to be becoming quite popular as well. So uh, it's giving all those things a chance to be put up at the show and, and judged, and and made aware to the buyers and made aware to the public. So um, I think you know the British Cheese Awards you know, act as a vehicle for for many things, really.
0: And, of course, traditionally cheese meant cow cheese, but now we also have the influx of cheese from other animals, such as goats
1: and sheep. Well, yeah, I mean, our, our supreme champion for the last couple of years, um, his, I think, one year was um, a um, sheep's cheese, and then we also, I think one of them was a was a goat's cheese. He, yeah, he's won two years separately with different cheeses, three years running, uh, and one year was a sheep, and one year was a goat.
0: And you have more than a hundred categories. Has that grown over the years as well?
1: Yes, it is. It's, I mean, um, we, we have in the, in the whole show there's um, 126 um, classes, and obviously but in, tied in with that, there's things like retailers. But we also have other dairy products like butter and uh, cream and yogurts. But you grow with with trends in in eating and and in cheese. And if suddenly now there is a lot of interest in the soft whites, we we then you know switch to that. Uh, you know, add classes to to where we think there could be a demand for people to to place an entry for you know for for judging. And the awards
0: are also open to the bigger companies, the big dairy cooperatives and companies that would produce cheese.
1: Yes, it is. Yes, but I think you know equally you know, you can also be quite a, a small specialist producer and still find something here in, in, in which to enter a class and have, have a go at winning. So it's very interesting that you can have, you know, these huge companies competing, but equally you can have somebody that's a sort of one-man, one-woman band, you know, producing something from the farm at home. So that's the joy of this, these uh, British Cheese Awards.
0: Yeah, and I would imagine as well that just because you're a huge producer doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to win anyway.
1: No, no. Well, it's it's interesting. The the guy that's won it for the last three years is sort of, you know, based quite local here at the showground. And um, he milks, I think, he's probably up to 800 goats. So it's still relatively sort of small, you know, doing it all from the one premises, milking the goats and producing the cheese. So, yeah, compared to some of the, the huge, you know, bigger, bigger companies, it's great that um, a company like that can still come in and and, and win from over 900 entries.
0: And you mentioned that he's won it three years running, and you said three different cheeses do a lot of producers enter different things each year?
1: Well, I I think some of them are very um, experimental with the cheeses they produce, and obviously they have a a customer base that, 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 that like the style of cheese that they produce, but then they want to keep their, their brand sort of fresh and different and they can come up with something or produce it in a different way and it's still appealing to either the buyers or to the public, then um, I think it keeps the whole cheese industry very vibrant and alive that people are trying to produce new cheeses.
0: And where do the judges come from?
1: Um, we well, would have sort of between seventeen and 80 judges, predominantly industry-led, and they're paired up according to their expertise and some will be buyers and but predominantly they're from the industry so they know they're and also we include retailers.
0: And do the entries come in from all corners of the UK like the Channel Islands and the Scottish Highlands etc?
1: Yeah we, we have entries from, from um, all over the place. Uh, yeah from say from Guernsey and Jersey and Scotland and, yeah, and Wales so they come from all over the place.
0: You mentioned trends earlier, and I know it's a contentious issue, but do you think that you would ever open up a category for plant-based cheese alternatives?
1: Um, we haven't had that, that discussion yet. I mean, it's probably something we will need to um, think about Is, is, is to whether you know, we need to look at uh, sort of non-dairy cheeses uh, within the section. You know, obviously, there is a sort of bit of a growing market for this, but I think at the moment we're quite focused on you know what we actually have here, which are predominantly you know milk based cheeses from whatever species uh, it's actually come from, but it may be something we have to think about in the future
0: and when's the deadline for people to enter
1: uh the entries close on the tenth of April,
0: so I assume there's a charge for entering
1: yes uh, the entry fees start at fifteen pounds it depends on your your tonnage that you produce.
0: Are there other things associated with the awards, like booths and ceremonies, that kind of thing?
1: Well, yeah, the cheeses um, are all on display for the three days of show, and then on the Thursday night, which is the first day of the show, because the, um, the judging happens on that day, we have the British Cheese Awards dinner, where all the winning categories get awarded, and it's um, and it, you know you wait right to the very end to find out who is the supreme champion, which is always very exciting and. Uh, we do a very good job of keeping that quiet until the last moment in the dinner where uh, the champion is, is announced and duly presented with their award. Uh, a real, real good night, you know, several hundred people, uh, lovely sort lovely of dinner. The food's quite interesting because the cheese board is made up of champions of the previous year, which is really good. And the other thing we're quite proud of is one of the few cheese shows where actually the public can come in and watch the judging. Um, I think been quite a few where it's all sort of shut down and closed. But, I mean, last year for the first time we tried it, it was amazing. The public were four deep watching the judging. They absolutely loved it. And I think it's very important for engaging the public about the great food we produce. And when you're next in your local deli or farm shop or supermarket, you, you are a little bit more informed about the choices you're making with, with cheese because we have great cheese in this country. And it would be great if people, you know, uh, learnt a little bit more about it and perhaps what's being produced on their own doorstep.
0: And are you able to explain to those who are watching what the judging criteria are?
1: Yeah, well, we have we have stewards sort of stationed around the edge of the judging and they'll have to answer questions. And then during, once the judging has finished, the public again can, can walk around and there's stewards there. So if any questions from the public, uh, that gets explained. And then something else linked to the awards is we have a um, a young cheesemonger award. So on the second day, again to find young people who are sort of passionate about cheese and working in the industry, we have this um, competition uh, to find a, to find somebody eligible for that title of young cheesemonger of the year, and they then get to go and judge at the World Cheese Awards.
0: What are the judging criteria?
1: On a scoring sheet for for the cheese, that there would be taste, the smell, the texture visually and then we also have another section that's packing uh, and also how it's presented is is important
0: next is another story with a bit of a deadline long-time listeners to the show may remember a few months ago we had a story on how the send a cow project is helping families in africa become self-sufficient with food Well, now Cow Uganda and the organisation Tusk have combined to create the Living with Wildlife programme. One of the problems the Murchison Falls National Park in Uganda has is neighbouring villages heading into the area to kill wild animals, some of them endangered simply to feed their families. The programme aims to help these local families and others across Africa become self-sufficient for food and to help look after the wildlife. We talked to Dr. Julius Adobango, project coordinator for Send a Cow Uganda, who is in the UK to raise awareness of the program and to raise funds. And the timely part of this is that any donations made before April the 14th will be matched
2: in full by the UK government.
0: What work are you doing in Uganda with Send a Cow?
2: With Send a Cow currently, I'm a project coordinator. Yeah, Send a Cow, like, you know, is a charity... Our work really is to try and work with vulnerable people, especially the poor communities, to try and give them the hope, we hope them eh, and provide them with the possible means so that they can at least have a better future. We embed ourselves in the community, become part of that community, and with them, we design what best works for them. We don't come in with preset solutions. We really try to work with them and get what works for them.
0: Clearly it's making a positive difference in the country.
2: That's what keeps me going. I mean, I like putting a smile on people's faces. When you work in a community and then one, two years down the road, you see the change. You see where you started from and the way they talk to you, the way they appreciate, it makes the day for me.
0: Is it just in Uganda or are there other countries that this work is in as well?
2: No, in Africa, we are in other countries, we are in Kenya, we are in Ethiopia, we are in Rwanda, we are in Burundi, Zambia.
0: Could you give me a few more details about what the Living With Wildlife project is? It's in the uh, National Park, is it?
2: Yeah, I, I hope you have a, you have time, because it's a long story. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> we are targeting the communities around, not all of them, but a particular community around which lives next to the national park. That community has many people who go into the park to get bush meat, and because of that, they are endangering the existence of the park. Because I will tell you that, uh, fortunately, that I, I don't come far. My home is not far from that community, and where I we live about 50 years ago was also like the park because there were very many animals, but the same community has cleared all those animals. So they have now crossed over because there's a river nile between the the, two, the park and the community. And they, because originally their livelihood is based on either fishing or hunting. So they don't know any other source of livelihood. Basically they would either fish or hunt. They have depleted the fish and now they're crossing into the park. Now we can't allow that, we shouldn't allow that to happen because what is on this side of the, on their side of the river is going to happen in the park also if nothing, no intervention is done. So this project is meant to give them some skills, train them. That's, that's the means, how to grow their own food, how to make money out of the land, because they have fertile land, so that they can earn a living other than going to the park to get bushmeat. The project is also intended to talk to them Talk to their hearts so that they understand that they don't need to kill these animals. And for in particular, for me in particular, as a vet, I, I feel so bad because those animals die in the most brutal way. They, they, the way they are killed, those traps are very, very, very. The animals die a very, very painful death. So if you have any idea of what is supposed to be animal welfare, you won't like those traps. This project want to talk to the people and say that, yes, these animals are there, they are good for us, we can live with them, we can have a a, A livelihood without hunting. Mm -hmm. So it's about telling them that, yes, we have other options. It is about giving them options because most of them go there because they have no other option. They have no livelihood option, so they only look at that, train the younger generation to have other skills which their elders don't have together can we find out. How do we live without going to the park? If we are to go to the park, let's also go and just see the animals. Because, first of all, we are being selfish. If we don't do anything, what will the next generation see? Pictures? They'll be told there was a buffalo which used to look like this, there was a lion which used to look like this. So, we should preserve this so that the future generations also have an opportunity to see these animals. You know, like in Uganda, we have the Cruelty to Animals Act. Eh? But nobody has ever been taken to court for brutalizing our uh, wildlife. It is is applied only to domestic animals. It should also apply to the wildlife. Really, we have to talk to people. We have to make people understand that what we are doing is not correct. What we are doing is being selfish, that we have to leave something for the future generation.
0: The living with wildlife is partly educational and also trying to help people on the ground by getting them independent with their own food supplies. Exactly. And how long has this, uh, this project been going?
2: It's still in the development phase, but our cycle is minimum three years because we believe in within three years we should have achieved the results. And then uh, usually we also keep around we have a policy of getting to the next community while you watch the ones you've left. So by the time you're finishing the second project, I think uh, the communities will be somewhere. They, they'll have, we, we, we think and we believe that at least they, they, they'll have changed their mindset. They'll have got other means of making money, of earning a living.
0: And what's reaction been like to it so far?
2: People are buying in. People are buying in and they are contributing. We are not yet on the ground. We have not yet started the actual work on the ground. We are still at the phase where we are trying to get people to buy in and say, yes, it can. this can work. Let's try it.
0: And are you already having discussions with people that live near to the park?
2: Yes, we've had several discussions. That's why what will come up. We, it's not our own thinking. It's, it's after talking to them. It's after talking to people who have got been in the business of hunting, people who have been in the business of or, or what is they, that hunting is called poaching because it is illegal. So when you talk to them, when you talk to them, and they told us, yes, we are going there because we have no option. We are going there because we have to put food on the table. We are going there because you have children to look after. Then we said, okay, is there a way we could do that without going to the park? I said, yes. There could be a way, but A, B, C, D may not be available. Like one, the knowledge and skill is lacking. Then two, the approach has been different because there was, a, there was some conflict between the community and the park, or what, because it was more of enforcement than talking. If I, I don't want to talk about that, but the relationship between the park and the community was not good.
0: So I assume that this is something that companies and individuals can contribute to?
2: Any level, even a pound, can make a difference.
0: And the UK government is matching all donations?
2: Yeah, pound for pound.
0: And when will you be able to start working on this on the ground?
2: We ought to start by July this year, if all goes well, and then run up to 2014. That's the main phase. Then phase down slowly while working in other communities. And I believe what will come out of this project will make the the, the, the approach, because it is a fairly unique approach, Maybe be adopted in other communities. The community we are working in is just a small one. The park, Masjent Falls is a very big, the largest park in Uganda and the oldest. So we are just working on one corner. So if we succeed, we believe it will be duplicated and it will continue until maybe we even go to other national parks in the country.
0: And if you are interested in making a donation, and you do so before April the 14th, the UK government will match that donation. And you can do that at sendacow.org, or you can follow the link in the podcast article on dairyreporter.com. The next deadline is to get an early bird registration discount to an interesting two-day dairy conference that is coming up in Northern Ireland in Cookstown. It's the spring conference of the Society of Dairy Technology, and the society's president, Dr. Paul Boucher, can give us all the details.
3: The society has been around a long time; it's like, around since the nineteen forties. We're trying to, um, you know, I suppose move with times and kind of modernise it as well. You know, we're doing more stuff online you know, and um, we're going to be kind of our, our journals now we're going to be going online, you know, we use following like, you know, on the Twitter and LinkedIn, you know, and 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 the, so it all, all adds all that's to kind of helping with, helping us modernise the society, particularly to, get, to 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 attract more young people to us, you know.
0: And wh- where are your members from primarily? Uh well looked at primarily from the UK and Ireland. Um and that's where it started off. But we, we
3: publish a lot of our articles on the, um, we have a journal there, the international journal there air technology that kind of spread across the world. And from that then, we've got a lot more members now across Europe and across the world.
0: And for the event that's coming mm-hmm. up in, in a couple of months, is that, again, predominantly Ireland and the UK?
3: Yeah, this was actually because it's it nearby, like, it's in that area, you know what I mean? But, like, we, we do with people, we do with people that come across, like, like we, we have people come across from New Zealand to some of our conferences, People even come from America, you know, and across Europe.
0: And how long yeah. the conference part of it been going? Uh, the conference has been going, um, it's, it's practically
3: been going since the start of society, really. We have um, we've three conferences a year. We have a spring one, a summer one, and an autumn one. And um, typically, the spring one, we move around to different regions of the UK and Ireland to, to develop the different regions. And typically, it will be held on the island of Ireland um, every two to three years. And we alternate that then between the southern part of the country and the northern part of the country. So say the last time we were in, um, in Caffrey, the College of Agricultural Food and Rural Enterprise in Tyrone would have been back in 2015. In 2017, we would have been in University College Cork and we're back here now again in 2020 uh, in Caffrey.
0: And you mentioned the three conferences. Is the content different for each one?
3: It is indeed. It changes every year. And very often we, we try to, I suppose, adapt to current issues. So, say, for the last time when it was in CAFGRAE in 2015, it was based around the quotas going in the UK, sorry, in the EU, and hence the increase in milk you know, um, in the UK and Ireland and how to cope and deal with that. So sometimes it's about innovation. And um, more times it's about processing development. Last number of years, it would have been about sustainability. Whereas this year now, I suppose, you know, we're looking beyond 2020, okay, 2020 and beyond. Okay, what's in, what's in store for the dairy industry for the next period of time? And we look then, we look across a number of things. We look at the, at the direction of research and, research and innovation, you know, consumer trends, dairy processing, the challenges and opportunities with that, the nutrition and health horizon scanning, and dairy solutions to promote a sustainable development.
0: A lot of conferences are sort of mostly academic. Is this sort of a mix of academic and industry?
3: It, it is, Jim, yes. And um, I suppose that's been kind of our hallmark, really, of the society. Really, it similarizes our society very well in that it's a mix of both industry and academia, and then also from, from students to professionals to CEOs to retirees. So it, it's a good mix of people. Across the different areas, and I think mean, that's what's good about society, and it's unique. It's not a fantastic networking opportunity for people, for young people developing their career, and for older people to make connections in the industry, whether it be
0: suppliers, whether it be processors, you know, technology. Uh, it's a gr- it's a great networking event as well. And what does the event consist of? It's not just presentations, is it?
3: No, not at all. No, and um, initially we start off with a, a site visit. And this time we're going to Pritchard's in new So again, I suppose, you know, what a lot of what we do is dairy processing. So we like to go around to different dairy companies and do the processing facilities, It which are good to allow us to do. We have an evening reception then. And this as well allows, you know, an, an informal discussion, you know, meeting and um, chatting over dinner and catch up with people and meeting new people. The following day then is essential the conference. You know, the, way the number of, of, of speakers, a number of talks. Uh, there's opportunity for trade stand viewing, um, you know, there's lunch, you know, uh, mixing, networking. And uh, it usually concludes then, as with this one, with an optional tour of the Caffrey pilot plant and laboratory and training facilities.
0: Who do you have lined up? I mean, obviously not all of them, but who do you have lined up for speakers?
3: Yeah, again, we have people across, I suppose, um, Southern Ireland and Northern Ireland and the UK. So we, we have people from, you know, from Tagusk, Dr. Mark Fellin who heads up the Food Research Program in Tagusk. We have speakers from Glanbia in the industry, just I suppose, to give the industry perspective. And um, Dr. Judith Byrne, the president of the of the IDF, will be giving a speak as well. You from UCD
0: and um, Caffrey. And how many people do you expect to attend? Is it the same every time, or?
3: Yeah, typically it's about 100 120 to 130 people. Again, it can vary from region to region. Five years ago, when we had it in the centre, we had a rough feeling so it was 120, 130 um, attendees, and we'd also about maybe six to ten exhibitors as well and um, that would have
0: stands there. And do you have to be a member to be able to attend? No, not
3: at all. Actually, you know, we, we get quite a lot of non-members attending because there's also the added benefit that that if you're not a member, And you attend, we give people a a year's free membership uh, to the society for going to the event. So it's an added bonus, I suppose. If you're not a member to go, you will get a year's free membership to the society next year.
0: And how do people register for it?
3: The best thing to do is go go to our our website online, which is www.sdt.org. And there's a link there, an online application form um, that you can fill in.
0: You mentioned an attendance of around 120, 130. What's the capacity? How many more could you take?
3: I think we'll we we'll we'll, we'll, we'll find space for everyone who would like to attend, you know. That's the good thing about facility cafe in Lockery, there's plenty of space there. We'll accommodate everybody.
0: Does the college um, have like a dairy courses, and that kind of thing?
3: It does indeed. It's quite a big, it has a big food area. You know, it has food business incubation centres. It has technology halls. There's a lot of training in a course in food technology, food nutrition, health, innovation, you know, packaging, so agri food. So it has a big, it has a strong reputation um, in this area, you know, and, and day, so day two, which is a good reason for us going, there's day two like to develop, you know, skills of people like ourselves, you know, and, and also help with technology transfer from academia to industry, um, which is what we are about as well. So there's good uh, synergy there.
0: I'm actually going to be going to that conference, so if you are too, see you there. And the bonus is, if you attend, you get to be a member of the society for a year. I'm not sure if that includes members of the media, though. And our next guest is Maria Valisario, Chief Science and Technology Officer at the Institute of Food Technologists on the topic of climate change, and a very interesting discussion it is too. So the
4: uh, Institute of Food Technologists, or as uh, it is commonly known, IFT, It is a scientific membership organization. It is a non-profit. It was established 81 years ago in 1939 after the New Deal. It was established by uh, MIT with a view to bring science and technology to uh, support the growing food chains. Uh, There was a need to bring food safety, particularly food safety, to the food system. And we are not affiliated with any particular industry. Our members today, we have approximately 15,000 members. The majority of our members come from industry. We also have academic members and government or non-profit, other non-profit members. Eighty-three percent of our members come from the United States, and the remainder come from something like 100 countries. So we have a global footprint, but our base is in the United States. The headquarters um, are in Chicago. For a long time now, for almost as long as we have been in existence, we run an annual um, event, which is unique in the sense that it combines a traditional expo with a very robust um, scientific program. In addition to the mainstream organization, we have a very strong and very engaged uh, IFT Student Association. They have their own board. It's a working board. And it is really a place where the students, they come together, they convene, they network, um, they receive a lot of support, and they get prepared as they enter the profession.
0: Obviously, climate change, What, and we're talking about the food industry specifically. I know there are many different factors with climate change, but what do you see as being the main issues when it comes to Climate change and food supply, because as you said in your your quote, it's very it's very complicated.
4: Well, it's a very interdependent problem. There is no way that we can separate the food system from the environment. You know, we're inextricably linked in all aspects of our interdependency, including uh, solutions on how to tackle the problem of the um, climate, the environment, and reliable food chains. The reality is that with population growth and the projected growth to 9, 10 billion people, by 2050 we will need to feed all those people. And we have done a tremendous job since the 70s. We have doubled uh, agricultural production. We have really perfected yield. But at the same time, we have created a number of environmental challenges, and we're now operating at the edges. By incremental improvements to yield, we are not going to increase production, food production to feed the world, while at the same time, um, you know, who will probably have more adverse environmental impact. So the food system, food production, agriculture and the manufacturing of food and distribution of food, they are contributing to climate change, and climate change and the um the really extreme phenomena that we experience, they are actually uh, affecting agriculture and reliable supply of food. Now, not all parts of the world they're affected equally by climate change, so we are seeing extreme phenomena. Dry areas become more dry, and wet areas, they probably more wet, or we're seeing parts of the world where we're having localized climate, and then we are seeing really extreme phenomena, for instance, the production of coffee and cocoa, In those latitudes you know we expect that in 30 years if the climate continues to change in the way it has been changing we're going to see the production of those crops to be extremely challenged and it will probably they will probably be pushed higher up in higher altitudes so it's a very interdependent situation and at the heart of this is not just one thing of production agriculture and the manufacture of food it is so many different contributors to this phenomenon. Now, in addition to the production of food, we also have a lot of food waste, either manifested as the waste of food that we produce uh, and we do not eat, 40% in developed uh, markets of the food we produce is wasted, and we also have a lot of uh, post-harvest losses, not so many losses in developed uh, markets, like in the order of 17%, because we have very good infrastructure and technology, but in developing markets like in Sub-Saharan Africa, we are actually losing 70%, 70% of the crops we're producing. So it is a very multidimensional phenomenon that requires not just one or a few solutions, but it requires a systems approach, and it requires a lot of dialogue because we have different stakeholders and different actors. Everybody needs to come together and look at solutions with all the um, associated benefits and drawbacks.
0: You mentioned people coming together and I think um, non-profit organizations, scientists and even the general public have this consensus of what needs to be done and the urgency of things but, and I don't mean every company and every government, but how do you bring companies and governments into this equation when the urgency is right now?
4: The evidence is indeed right now and we have we have not fully grasped the accelerated pace of change we have you know we have seen the climate change and evolve but the pace of that change is now very concerning again looking at one dimension only which is the economic factor uh, or looking at the scientific factor it is not going to help us it has to be the totality of solutions that allow our societies to be sheltered, to be fed, to have the comfort and the opportunity to advance. It is not an easy conversation, uh, notwithstanding the fact that we have a lot of phenomena associated with denying science and the scientific facts, but the facts are the facts. So what we're seeing is, even among parts of the population and the economic sector, we are seeing phenomena that we have not seen before, so we, we're seeing a lot of extreme weather. Uh, we are seeing uh, erosion and acute destruction of the environment, rising water levels. We are seeing waterlogged fields that cannot be accessed in the spring for sowing crops. Uh, last year in Illinois, in 2019, only 43 percent of the seeds were sow- uh, sowed because of the weather. So. These phenomena, they may be still kind of localized, regionalized, but we are seeing more of them. So these patterns are are becoming more, more prevalent. And of course, when we see patterns of this nature, we are going to see effects in the economy. And it is not a coincidence that a lot of companies from the CPG sector, they are now coming together to address some of those challenges upstream in agriculture because their success for a very long time has relied on a supply chain that runs like a clock. The complexity of our supply chains from the source in agriculture all the way to the point of sale, these supply chains are so complex, and they rely on efficiencies, they rely on reliability, and they rely on a guarantee of continuity. So when we have phenomena like this, we're going to see discontinuity and discontinuity will come disruption that is going to have economic, short-term economic impacts and also long-term issues with brand and equity for the companies that they bring food to the masses.
0: So you think that companies are starting to realize that they have to do some, some things
4: differently? Yeah, absolutely. They have, yeah. And we see more and more of this the climate, concerns about the climate, and actually broader environmental degradation, they are now becoming part of the calculus. It is unfortunate that we do not have a universal definition of sustainability and universal metrics, but you see more and more companies actually voluntarily creating their own metrics, meaningful metrics about human environmental and economic sustainability, because that sustainability, it is part of, um, it is part of their long-term viability and, and you know uh, performance robustness, but it is also part of the credibility. What we have seen with consumers in the past 10 years has been very remarkable. For a very long time, consumers would follow brands, they would trust the food manufacturers and the food supply, and pretty much they would make choices based on value. Uh, nowadays they are very they're very adamant about value and values and those values mean different things to different people but it is not just about consumers are now asking the question is this good for me but also is it good for us is it good for the environment so they're looking for answers regarding sustainability practices humanitarian practices and so forth this is something that is really creating a lot of pressure on companies and this pressure is felt and we're seeing that a lot of big organizations are coming together to work with consumers but also with suppliers upstream the food chain also and downstream in actually mitigating food waste and mitigating the mitigating environmental impact from you know food waste and packaging but the reality is that things are changing you know we have seen um you know, with the United Nations Eat um, Lancet study, how we are operating at the environmental limits. This may be uh, a very difficult message for the meat industry and there are some countries that their national economies are reliant on, on meat exports. But at the end of the day, because we are not addressing a problem, we don't want to address a problem, it doesn't mean the problem goes away. So the best thing would be to actually engage in conversations and see how how there can be reasonable mitigating efforts. On the other hand, I think it would be wise for these sectors to look at alternative markets. Developed markets, they are moving toward less meat and dairy consumption, but developing markets that they have had challenges with access to protein or access to high quality of protein, they are... Becoming more affluent these days and they are looking for better quality protein. So we're going to see new global trade opening up. So it is not just about continuing to do the things that we have been doing. It's also about finding alternative ways to, you know, distribute produce and products in new and uh, emerging markets. Uh, one thing that I want to mention is that one of the additional concerns is the asymmetrical regulations that we see across major and smaller markets. This is a significant concern because for regulations and global standards are absolutely critical, fundamental to reaching agreements and enabling the flow of safe food and grains around the world. So. Regulations are also a big part of the um, challenges that we're facing right now.
0: Do you think that the dairy industry is improving or do you think that the dairy industry can reach the point where it's fully sustainable?
4: I think the dairy industry is improving. There are certainly, there appears to be signs where there is more of a pull considering the the, the trends for plant-based nutrition. More can be done to achieve more sustainability, but the industry is moving in the right direction. Uh, Maybe not across the board. Maybe some parts of the industry or parts of the world, they're more willing to embrace the challenges and find solutions. But I think as a whole, I think we are seeing some signs of moving in that direction.
0: Do you think that some, some dairy companies like Danone have already branched out into the plant-based alternatives. Do you think that that's something that a lot of dairy producers need to be looking at is to diversifying and getting involved in plant-based?
4: I think Danone is one of the first companies to embrace both uh, and balance two, two sectors that, you know, they are antithetical. <laughs> there are also other other examples in the meat industry like Tyson, having a portfolio of meat and meat alternatives, plant-based alternatives. We're going to see this trend, and this trend, I expect this trend will grow because what is becoming apparent is that plant-based products and plant-based milk alternatives, they actually, they're not necessarily consumed by, strictly speaking, vegetarian or vegan people, but it's actually people who are more flexitarian, people who are balancing the type of um, food repertoire, and therefore having opportunities, like you know, companies like Danone, having opportunities to meet the growing demand of flexitarians, is very important. Also, a number of companies, they're taking an approach across platforms. So, for instance, companies will say, we will develop solutions and science and technology to manage protein, regardless of the origin, be it of animal source or of plant source because there is a significant amount of technology downstream to actually create new ingredients with functionality of ingredients that we have been accustomed to. There is also the other component, and that is the component of what technology we need and what nutrition solutions we need to bring these alternatives on par nutritionally with the original sources. So for instance, milk alternatives today, they're not nutritionally equivalent to dairy uh, milk. So how are we going to fortify and formulate those alternatives so that they can be as close as possible to milk? I think that's a fair question to put forward for uh, companies and scientists to, um, to address.
0: In the um, past few weeks, I've done a few really interesting interviews with a variety of companies, one of them is using algae as a protein and also as a colour and flavour source. Um, I did an interview with a company in Singapore that's creating milk from cells. Um, Do you think that technologies like this are going to be more and more part of how our food supply is generated maybe 10, 15,
4: 20 years from now? Indeed. I think we're going to see... We're going to see a, a new generations of I will call it agriculture in uh, inverted commerce so today we have there is a clear delineation between production agriculture and and food processing so you know you have crops or animal livestock and you know we produce a variety of produce which is then converted into ingredients and it is packaged and sold off in the future we're going to have, new ingredients coming from new sources like algae, or we're going to have cultured meat alternatives that actually the original, the cells, they came from animals, but the, the proliferation of the cells and the forming of the meat, so to speak, uh, took place in a, in a fermenter or an industrial environment. How, wh- what do we call this in between? It is not an animal, it is not a plant, it is something different. It's a produce of, of biotechnology prowess. So we will need to be a lot more open, and certainly we need to be, from a regulatory standpoint and standards of identity, we need to be prepared to have those conversations and definitions and have those conversations without prejudice. At the end of the day, people need to eat. So the amount of food and the amount of calories and nutrients we need to produce for the population of the of the globe. The challenge is there. The question is how do you address it? We need to uh, think beyond today's very clear delineation between production, agriculture and food manufacturing.
0: Now it's over to INTLFC Stone for our weekly look at the global dairy markets and this week it's with Liam Fenton.
5: Further uh, to Wednesday's uh, trading record for volume on the EX Futures We also had a new record weekly volume uh, level, uh, just under 8,500 tonnes trading for the week, uh, which beats the previous record um, of just under 7,700 tonnes, which was posted back in November 17. This, I guess, is an indication of the continued growth uh, of hedging in the dairy market, um, in a market that's very worried about what sort of price action we will see in prices in the coming weeks and months, uh, like the rest of global markets, oil, stock markets, etc. The dairy world is really concerned about the coronavirus as well and the effect that that's going to have on prices. At the same time, I guess prices have remained relatively stable, but the sentiment is probably negative in butter anyway. We had quarter two um, trading down at the 34.40 level, quarter three trading at the 34.75 level, then quarter four at around 35.50 and quarter one at 36.25. All similar, basically, to last week. Uh, I think what really lent support was the cream market. That had a really strong rally lending fat, lending support to dairy fat um, on the back of seemingly short-term stockpiling due, as you guessed it, I guess, uh, coronavirus again. Skimmel powder was off a little bit, probably not helped uh, by the big drop in oil prices. Quarter two was down about €75 Euros to twenty two twenty five. Uh, euros per ton level. Quarter three down around 50 euros to 2300. And quarter four was trading around 2365. Quarter f- one was pretty much the same as last week, around 2425. We also felt under pressure, um, trading as low as around the 715 level.
0: Thanks, Liam. We'll catch up with you in a couple of weeks, seeing as I'm putting the next podcast together in two days' time. And that's it for another week. The next podcast will be next week while I'm in the Netherlands, so there won't be a great deal of news, but there will be some interviews on Halloumi from Cyprus, a couple more interviews from the Salon de l'Agriculture, and also a feature on a UK yoghurt producer who is partly doing away with packaging by putting the yoghurt into a dispenser in a local store where you can take your own container and fill it. And the week after that, hopefully, we'll have some interviews from the Netherlands to share with you. Oh, and don't forget to register for tomorrow's webinar. And so until the next podcast, take care, have a great week, and as always, thanks for listening.